Okay, hi everybody, welcome, welcome to the Book of Lost Tales Part 2. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Um, we, uh, we haven't uh, been away for all that long, but for some reason it feels like a very long time this time. Uh, so I'm very excited to be back doing uh, Mythgard Academy classes with you guys. Um, oh, uh, one quick... Um, uh, question, yes, uh, a couple of you are pointing out that uh, was, uh, the chat room link seems to have been neglected uh, on the on the live chat. Uh, yeah, it's not on this page. Uh, sorry, we'll get that fixed. In the meantime, um, go to a, uh, go to a different... I, I, well, you can find them on either the Riddles in the Dark page or the Mythgard Academy classes, but go to the last one. Go to the Watership Down page, the uh, page, uh, web page of our last class, and click on the link there. That link should still be there, and it should be pretty much, you know, the same. Um, we'll make sure that there's a, a new link up uh, on this page. It's not there either, Yana? Well, darn it. If there's one on Riddles in the Dark, then, uh, uh, then, uh, then use that one. It should be there. We haven't discontinued our chat room that I know of. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure that I saw that thing bouncing around. Okay, if it's on the Riddles in the Dark page, fine. Go to the Riddles in the Dark page then, uh, and uh, uh, and use that one for tonight, and we'll get, try to get that fixed uh, for next time. Sorry about that, everybody. I had uh, forgotten about that in the midst of everything else. Um, so those of you, and and just for those of you who are new uh, to to this class, of course, uh, some people um, you are able to um, you're you're able to. Uh, 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 communicate with me, of course, during the class. If you have comments or questions, many of you have been typing in. That's how I learned about this issue. Um, so please do uh, use the the, the 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 little chat questions window uh, to uh, you know make your own observations. I'm going to be. I have uh, many points at which I'm going to be very interested to hear your observations and your thoughts about some of the passages we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, but if you also want to be able to chat amongst yourselves, uh, then we have a live chat room to facilitate that. But it is completely optional, uh, so you don't. Uh, if uh, you are like me, I confess, easily distracted by such things, uh, you, there's no compulsion. But you may use that if you like. Um, so anyway, that's what uh, that's what this is about. Normally, we have a link right on our web page, but it seems to have been neglected here. Okay, all right. Um, let's, um, let's start talking about the book. Well, actually, before we talk about the Book of Lost Tales, I have a few announcements. So, first of all, uh, you know, welcome to, uh, this, you know, f the Watership Down class, which was awesome. Uh, I'm so glad we did that. Um, uh, that was a, sort of a transitional class that happened during the time, you know, that was, uh, sort of decided upon during the time, uh, of our campaign last year. We knew we were going to be continuing, but that was sort of transitional. This is the first, uh, you know, the first, you know, sort of elected book during the, um, uh, during the, uh, 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 the new season here. Um, so it's sort of like welcome to a new season. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard, of course, we're doing Book of Lost Tales Part 2 uh, starting tonight. And then after that, probably the end of April, very beginning of May, um, we're going to do The Princess Bride, uh, which is a book I've never taught, so I'm very excited uh, to do that book. So that will be a lot of fun in other Mythgard Academy-related news. Uh, you may remember, those of you who were following during our fundraising campaign in the fall may remember that we were trying to raise special funds to dedicate to doing a, an extra lecture um, 
series, um, bringing in uh, you know, world famous uh, uh, lecturers to come and, and, and give talks um, to the public. You know, for you guys here in our Mythgard Academy series, that is um, uh, that is. On its way now, we have uh, five out of our six speakers confirmed now, um, uh, which I'm very excited about. So if you go and look, uh, look for the, um, uh, look for the. We, we have there's a, a web page on this on the Mythgard Academy page. Look for the uh, the guest lecture series page, uh, and you can see some of the, uh, the the people that we have set up for that. It should be it should be and, and their topics. It should be really great. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. We'll be announcing the dates for those soon. Uh, the first one should be, I think, not too long uh, from now. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to announce before we get started um, is an event that's happening soon. Again, another thing that uh, we talked about during the fundraising campaign that we would be able to do, and which we are now in the process of doing, is beginning to do more regional events. Um, and we have our first regional event here in my region, uh, in the New England area, in Boston, um, in a couple weeks. So uh, Saturday, February 28th, we are doing a marathon viewing of the Lord of the Rings films with discussion and day-long service of of uh, Tolkien-themed food. Um, I'm going to be there. This is in this is in Arlington near Boston. Um, you know, a neighborhood in Boston. Um, uh, uh, again, February 28th. So it's coming up. It's only in a couple weeks. Um, and it's really going to be uh, it's really going to be a very fun time. I have always enjoyed these kinds of uh, movie marathons when I've done them, uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to the opportunity. So I hope uh, that uh, that some of you are going to are, are going to be able to make it. Uh, Sarah's asking, "How's the snow in Arlington these days?" Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it's it's totally we've totally got it under control. I mean, there's only three feet of snow on the ground, so it's not like it's a big deal. Um, anyway, so uh, so I definitely I definitely encourage you to come. I think you know a lot of people have uh, uh, you know confirmed that they're def- that you know that they're definitely coming and looking forward to it. Um, I would definitely encourage you if you are planning to to definitely get your tickets right away. We we're going to need to be confirming with our caterers uh, how many how you know how much Hobbit food uh, we're going to need. So I definitely encourage you to uh, uh, complete the registration process. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Patrick, I think most hobbits could still see over the snow in Arlington, so that means it's fine. Um, uh, yes, it will snow food and rain drink, Tom. That I think we can pretty much, uh, we can pretty much promise. Um, so it's definitely going to be a good time. So again, I just, I encourage you, if you uh, know people in the Boston area, uh, you know, who might not, uh, you know, who you think might enjoy such a thing, but, you know, haven't been connected with us yet, encourage them to, to find that on our website, mythguard.org. Uh, and uh, and look into it because it should be a really really fun event. Okay, the Book of Lost Tales. So, start with a little overview. Um, for those of us who are doing this in real time, uh, it's been a while since we did the Book of Lost Tales Part One last year. Um, of course, for people who are listening to the recording, perhaps not. But but anyway, for 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 those of us in real time, it has been. Um, so let's do a little bit of review. What is the Book of Lost Tales, right? The Book of Lost Tales is that really the first major work of Tolkien, or rather the first attempt at a major work by Tolkien, might perhaps be a more accurate way to describe it. Um, 
Uh, it's his earliest attempt to create a connected, overarching mythology, but not just a mythology. People often want to call it a mythology, um, which, I mean, it's not inappropriate, of course. It is a mythology in, many, in, 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 in several ways, in the sense that he's creating this sort of pantheon and history of the world, um, and in the sense in which he's trying to create myth uh, in a couple different senses, really, and we'll be looking at that more and more as we go through the book. Um, but but what I would want to emphasize is not just its sort of its status as mythology, but its status as story. Tolkien had written a bunch of stories already. This is not him um, sitting down and putting pen to paper and thinking of, you know, these stories about elves and men for the first time ever. That is, he already had some of them. Um, but what he's doing in the Book of Lost Tales is putting a larger historical frame together to contain these stories which he had already written. Um, most notably, he had already written uh, the, 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 the Fall of Gondolin story. He had already written the story uh, of Turin, uh, which was very directly inspired um, uh, by, uh, by the, the Finnish Kalevala uh, and the story of Kulervo. Um, and so you can see uh, Verlin Flieger has done wonderful work on this. Um, uh, she has published both Tolkien's earlier story of Turin, his, his first version of the Turin story, but also Tolkien's own story of Kulervo. He, he sort of it, it like directly merged from Tolkien writing his own prose version of the Kulervo, Kulervo story from the Kalevala into his doing his Turin story, um, which is very heavily based on the Coolerville story. So again, uh, I, I, I give that one as an illustration of how these are stories that Tolkien was already interested in that were kind of growing out of his mind and growing out of different things, right? Out of different, out of different interests of his. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, he tries to bring them all together and to make them into, to fit them into a larger framework that would really be his, or, of course, as he characterized it later, which he could then present to England uh, as its mythology. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw we saw him building this mythology back in part one. You know, I, I sort of pointed out the kind of irony when we talked, when we did volume one last year, that uh, all of the, you know, we, we studied the Part one, which contains all of the early the earlier elements of the, that is the elements of the mythology which are chronologically earlier within the time frame of the story, right from the creation of the world from the Ainu um, uh you know, up through the rebellion of the Noldor, uh, and all that stuff. You know, the early what what are sort of the early parts of the story, but those early parts of the story came later chronologically in Tolkien's chronology, right? He already had these other stories. And in part one, we read none of those. Um, those stories, the stories that are kind of the foundations of this whole thing, the stories which have inspired this entire, um, this entire, you know, sort of creative movement on Tolkien's part, the stories which he is building the framework around, those are all the stories that are in part two. And those are the things that we're going to be reading together and looking at over the next couple months. Um, uh, 
we're going to be looking at these central stories. These have always been Tolkien's central stories. These will always remain Tolkien's central stories. Um, you know, we're talking about the story of Baron and Luthien, the story of Turin Turambar, the story of the fall of Gondolin, the story of Eärendil. Those are the four big stories, which are really the cornerstones of Tolkien's creative world, the stories that he never left, and the stories which never ceased to be really central in his own imagination. Um, those are the stories that we're going to be looking at this time. Um, and remember, as we talked about in the first class, he, uh, he these are also, the, you know, we, we could say, the, these are things he's going to return to. Uh, he, he doesn't finish the Book of Lost Tales. Of course, the Book of Lost Tales was never published, nor ever fully completed. Uh, and um, he, um, and uh, and when he abandoned it, what he turned to doing, of course, was to go back to these central stories. Right? What he does after this are the things which are the the poems which are published in the Lays of Lathian. Um, that is, he goes down. and He says, uh, "I think I'm just going to go and do the Turin Turambar story again, except this time in alliterative verse." So he starts doing this poetic treatment of the children of Hurin's story in alliterative verse, and that you know he 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 doesn't finish that, and then he comes back to the Baron in Tenuvial story um, and does that one in heroic couplets, and uh, and we get a good deal more uh, of that one, uh, a good deal more lines of poetry um, of that one, um, before again he abandons that one too, of course as uh, anyone who's familiar with Tolkien's life work knows, he finished really a comparatively small percentage of the uh, uh, of the, the, the works that he did um Anyway, um, a couple questions here. Uh, Tim Fisher asks, is the Book of Lost Tales a Christopher Tolkien title or a JRT um, uh, uh, title? Um, it is Tolkien's title. Um, that title appears on the written cover uh, of, the, of the, the manuscript that Tolkien himself wrote um, back in the late teens when he was writing the Book of Lost Tales. So that's, that's, that's Tolkien's original idea. And you can see the the source of that the, the the point of that right is that these are you you remember the frame right with Ariel the man who shows up at Erisea and meets the elves in the cottage of lost play and he's there with the human children which have been lost and are living there in uh, in, in the cottage of lost play with the elves um, you know Vire the the elf who's she's an elf lady she is not one of the one of the Valar. Um, as that name will later be a name of of a of a of a uh, one of the Valar, of course, um, Mandos's wife, but she's not yet; she's still an elf. Um, anyhow, so um, uh, again, the plot: Ariel is getting all these stories. Right, he is hearing these stories from various tellers over the course of a period of time and his own story, his own relationship with those elves and children and everything as part, you know, then gains some momentum itself as part of the um, this overall story. So he was really kind of running... Uh, the, the concept of the... The original concept of the Book of Lost Tales I think is really fascinating because what it does is it basically interweaves two different stories, right? It's primarily the story of the history, uh, you know, of the Elder Days, or at least what we will later call the Elder Days, once the Third Age is invented. Um, but um, 
But at the same time, we have a parallel story that is the story of Ariel himself um, and the other elves that he meets, which is actually going, which actually itself grows over time and is going to culminate uh, in an actual climax of the story. But these tales are lost, right? Um, you know, the sort of the fiction of this book that Tolkien is putting together is that somehow these tales which were told to Ariel and which Ariel wrote down have been recovered in some way, right? Um, that's why they're the lost tales. Um, remember, Tolkien almost always thought this way. Uh, Tolkien almost always had some kind of mechanism for how the story that you're reading came to you, right? Um, that's almost always a part of Tolkien's fictional framework. Um, and that's the point of the Lost Tales title. Now, I'm going to stop talking about that for now because we're going to come back and talk about this a good deal more when we come to the last chapter of uh, Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2. There is a lot of stuff there. Um, as not only this, the, the frame tale begins to move towards its end, as Tolkien abandons it and doesn't actually write the ending, um, but not only not only do we have to kind of piece together where Tolkien was going with it before he abandoned it, but then also he radically changes the frame at the end, ditching Ariel and replacing with a different character who has a completely different history and who therefore radically changes the entire frame concept, which suggests a complete change of mind about some of the ways he's approaching these stories and framing these stories entirely. Um, we'll get to that. We'll talk about that at the end. Um, things get really kind of dizzying a little bit uh, when we get to the end of the Book of Lost Tales. So we're going to save that for now until we get there. Um, but uh, but anyway, so so Timothy, that, that is uh, the, the Lost Tales thing. Oh, uh, thank you, Luke. Luke tells me that the uh, the link is up now, so if you guys want to go, you can, I guess you can carry on on the Riddles in the Dark one if you'd like, um, but if you go back to the, uh, the, the, the Book of Lost Tales page now, the chat room link is there for those of you who would like it, so. Um, anyway, okay, um, so as I say, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the ending. Um, now, a, a brief note on nomenclature as we move to talking about the Tenuviel story. Um, I'm going to try to be consistent in using the nomenclature of this story, okay? That is, we're not talking about Baron and Luthien. I, I, I've already used Luthien, the name Luthien, and I did that on purpose because I'm, I was trying to talk about the story in Tolkien's mind over the course of his whole life. But when we're talking about, you know, the, 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 the story in this book that is under discussion, we're going to be talking about Tenuviel because, of course, as you will notice, her name isn't Luthien at all. It's just Tenuviel. It's not Luthien, and she's sometimes called Tenuviel. It, her name is Tenuviel. Right, um, that is her only name. Um, so we're going to, you know, the characters we're talking about are Tinuviel, Baron, Tinuviel's dad, Tinwillant, her mom, Gwendoling, and her brother, Dairon. Um, so uh, uh, Tinwillant, of course, is the character who will later be called Thingol. Gwendoling is the character who will later become Melian. Um, they, those two characters, are very similar. 
certainly in their structure. That is, you've got the king of the woodland realm and his divine wife. Um, the story of their meeting in the woods and his enchantment by her, as it's told, is, is, is quite similar uh, to what we get later on. Um, so they're relatively familiar. Of course, the Dairon thing is a major change, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, that Dairon the minstrel uh, of the court of Thingol uh, and the, the minstrel who, who sang and, uh, and played uh, for Luthien and accompanied Luthien, excuse me, Tenuvial's dancing, is her brother, right? Uh, we have Dairon the minstrel who sings for Luthien in the Silmarillion, um, who is decidedly not... The brother of, uh, of 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 Luthien, and instead we have this uh, uh, you know sort of romantic rivalry going on between him and Baron in the later story. Um, uh, I think it's important to maintain the distinction. Quite important to maintain the distinction. So scold me if I accidentally call the elf maid in question Luthien over the course of uh, class today. Um, because one thing I think it's really important for us to keep in mind, this is not the same story, right? The story, the tale of Tenuvial is not the same story as the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, and as, as Carita says, Tenuvial is quite a different character in this story. I, I agree, she is different. And uh, it's for that reason that I want to insist on using the different nomenclature, um, because I think that we do need to... Um, in fact, it's, it's almost convenient. If everybody had the same name, um, I'm almost sorry that Baron does have the same name as he has later on, because he's a quite different character, too. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of convenient, actually, to be able to kind of put them under these different labels, and it helps us, I think, to be able to maintain distinctions uh, between them. Um, uh one brief note on this story: I was talking about how Tolkien had written some of these of the of the you know sort of the great tales before, and he was building the framework of the lost tales around them. This story doesn't seem to be one of those. Um, that is, this 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 is, I, I believe, the earliest version of the tale of Tenuvial. Um, so this is not so. It's not like the 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 the, the Turinturinbar story, which goes back to to his earlier you know uh, creative work um, uh, uh, with the, with the finished stories. Um, this is not like the Fall of Gondolin, which he'd already had written and which he brought to this project. Um, he's working on this, but he is. There is an earlier version. Um, earlier than the one that Christopher Tolkien gives here, he mentions it, that Tolkien had, and Tolkien did this, it was it's in retrospect, kind of infuriating that he did this, um, he would write things in manuscript in pencil, and then he'd go back and rewrite it in pen, like over top of the pencil, and then he'd erase the pencil so that you couldn't tell at all what the first version was like. Um, so uh, it, it's there was an earlier, but 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 that still seems to be an earlier draft of this story, not like a a completely pre you know an independently pre existing version of the story. Um, uh, no, at least not so far as I know. Um, now, like last time, that is like when we studied the Book of Tales Part One. One of the things that I was saying throughout that class that I wanted to do. Um, was to try to resist the temptation to be continuously comparing this story 
with the version in the Silmarillion. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say that cautiously. I'm not trying to... It, it, obviously, it would be silly not to be thinking about it at all. It, it's, it's, it would be impossible not to make any kinds of comparisons. And I, I, obviously, I think it's, 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 it's very useful to make comparisons. But it's also really easy to end up falling into the pattern of just observing differences um, and failing, as a consequence, actually to draw any real conclusions about them. Um, and what's more, in the process of doing that, it's really easy to lose sight of what this story is doing on its own, right? If all we're thinking of, it's not like the Silmarillion in this way, it's not like the Silmarillion in that way, he's changing this, he's going to change that, um, we're losing, we're not really paying attention to this story, right? And I think that we can miss a lot about it. And it's even possible to come out with a, um, uh, it's even possible for him to, to, to for, for, for us to come out without any really clear sense of what this story itself is about and what this story is really interested in. <laughs> Bri- Brianna makes a great point. Uh, Brianna says, uh, I bet Tolkien himself is pretty happy about him sabotaging these earlier versions so people can't read them. Yeah, Brianna, I do. And I, I said this when we did the last class, too. Um, I... I Christopher Tolkien means the best, but I cannot imagine that Tolkien, if he were alive, would be anything other than, like, mortified to find this stuff published. Um, I mean, these are his, you know, really early drafts. I mean, we're talking, he's not, you know, he's in his 20s when he's writing these, and he's, he's, um, I mean, early 20s, he's quite young. Um, so we're like, you know, this is like stuff that he wrote in college. I mean, good grief. Imagining stuff that I wrote in college and, and imagining people reading that. And not just stuff that I wrote, but like stuff that I scribbled in college. Um, and, uh, you know, he might want to say, like, I rejected those things for a reason, <laughs> right? Especially knowing how persnickety Tolkien was and what a perfectionist he was. Uh, I often think, um, uh, I often think that... Uh, I, 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 Tolkien would really, really not like this, the history of Middle Earth series. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I still am glad that Christopher published them. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, Brianna, I agree. Tolkien himself probably wishes he'd burned the lot. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh so I do, as I was saying before, I do want to make sure that when we're reading this story, we're trying to get some sense of what this story itself actually is. Okay, not just its identity as like non-Silmarillion, right? Again, not just you know to come out of it with a list of similarities and differences. We have to talk about the similarities and differences. I mean, we're not going to be able to escape them, but they need to be a step on the way to the conclusions that we draw. They need to help us shine a spotlight on what's happening in this story rather than to obscure what's happening in this story um, if our eyes are too focused on the later Silmarillion story as we're going through. Um, so that's going to be the goal. We'll see how well we do. Well, I do want to... St- where, where I want to start, though, is with some major, uh, some major comparisons. Um... Anyway, uh, well, I, uh, Kate, I agree. Kate uh, Neville says, I prefer to hope that he's up in the mountains just laughing at us. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, 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 you know, Kate, of course, is making a reference to the end of Leaf by Niggle. I agree, Kate. Um, let's hope that uh, rather than being uh, upset, offended, or angry, uh, that the mountains are ringing with his laughter. Um, I very much prefer that. Hey, Jules here. Good to see you, Jewel. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jules says that in a way, the story, uh, the story to the Silmarillion is like the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings. One can imagine them being told to children. I agree, yeah, and I think you know, Jewel. That's a really interesting observation. One immediate temptation I think that one has in reading the Book of Lost Tales. You think about the diction of the Book of Lost Tales, right? The Silmarillion, of course, is very noticeable for how um, how much more archaic. Uh, the this, the tone and style is compared to uh, compared to the Lord of the Rings and certainly compared to the Hobbit. Um, it's one of the things that serves as a kind of a stumbling block for a lot of first time readers in the Silmarillion. Well, the Book of Lost Tales on the one level is more archaic than the Silmarillion, but yet, Jewel, I agree with you. Despite that fact, it's also kind of more playful, um, and I think it is a little bit more sort of childlike in tone. I agree that it is easier for me, too, to imagine this tale being told to children. Indeed, we're told that this is a tale that is told by children, right, uh, to Ariel. Um, so that's um, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Anyway, but we might as well start in actually beginning to look at the details of the story itself. Uh, we might as well start with what I think is the major mind-blower of... In fact, I would. I think there is nothing that blew my mind more in my entire reading of the Book of Lost Tales for the first time than this one fact about this story. It was, to me, the most shocking element of both volumes of the Book of Lost Tales put together. And that is the question of Baron's race. Could not believe that. Uh, I mean, just I, when I when I first saw this, I mean, I remember reading it uh, and how shocked I was uh, to discover that Baron was an elf in this first version. Um, <laughs> Jordan is teasing me. Uh, Jordan Sunderland is teasing me for the uh, the uh, shocking efficiency uh, with which I have gotten to slide one. I've spent only what half an hour. Uh, before I got to slide one, that was that was really good. Um, okay, so Baron's race. This um, this is from Christopher Tolkien's commentary, uh, talking about this. But there is nonetheless the most uh, remarkable differences. There are nonetheless the most remarkable differences, and the chief of these is, of course, that Baron was here no mortal man, but an elf, one of the Noldoli, and the absolutely essential element of the story of Baron and Luthien is not present. It will be seen later that this was not originally so, however. In the now lost because erased first form of the tale of Tenuvio, he had been a man. It is for this reason that I have said that the reading man in the manuscript, later changed to gnome, is a significant slip. Years after the, several years after the composition of the tale in the form in which we have it, he became a man again, though at that time... 1925 to 6, that is when Tolkien is working on the, um, the, the, the poetic version, the Lay of Lathian. My father appears to have hesitated long on the matter of the elvish or mortal nature of Baron. Um, I think, 
think that Christopher is absolutely right here. The, the phrase that he uses, the absolutely essential element of the story of Baron and Luthien, um, I think that absolutely nails it. And in fact, in some ways, I think Christopher Tolkien actually kind of understates the case here. Um, when he says it will be seen later that this was not originally so, I mean, I'm not questioning his facts here. Um, I mean, if Christopher Tolkien tells me that Baron had been a man in the erased version from before, and he's got good evidence for that. I'm not contesting the fact there. But what I am contesting is... It seems relatively clear if Tolkien shifted from Baron being a man to Baron being... A, no, like, like, I'm going to tell the same story, except he's going to be an elf. I would, I would argue that the absolutely essential element of the story of Baron and Luthien wasn't present back in the erased first version, you know, or first form, either. Um, let, me, let me try to um, explain uh, what I... Or to illustrate what I mean by this. Um, Baron's race. Like, think about what it means for this story. Right, um, the story of Baron and Luthien, as he says, you know that essential, that absolutely essential element of the story of Baron, the story as it as it becomes of Baron and Luthien, um, the story of that first and greatest of the unions between elves and men. Um, think of how the whole interracial nature of that story, um, the the. The things that that is tied with, the ideas and the mythic, uh, the the mythic elements that it invokes throughout that story. Think of how that story leads us to, um, you know, as Tom says, it's one of the key elements that makes it mythic. I absolutely agree. Um, think of how it's tied up with this this idea of doom, right? The doom that follows Baron, like the the great doom that brought him through the girdle of Melian. This. This heavy fate is upon him because him and his joining with Luthien is a, a, a doomed, a fated thing, which has massive repercussions for like the entire history of the world. Right? I mean, it's a huge deal. Any particular relationship between two elves, not so much. Right? So again, that whole element of doom, like tied with the fate of the world. Right? Um, is tied up with the fact that Baron is a man, right? And uh, and and she is an elf. Not to mention the way in which it both ties in and accentuates the this you know this sort of theme of of doing the impossible, right? Of crossing impossible lines. Um, you know the 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 way you know sort of the, the the kind of parallelism between bridging the gap between elf and man in within their relationship and the you know, the incredible surpassing of what anybody thought was possible with the, you know, we're going to go and, uh, you know, raid uh, Thangorodrim and still steal a Silmaril uh, from the Iron Crown. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's um, uh, you know, you, you sort of think of... Uh, I'm reminded of Tenuviel's list of the longest things, right? You know, we've got these list of things that, that are associated with length. Uh, well... In the later version of the story, it's like we get these things that are associated with 
impossibility, right? With these impos- these, these frontiers which cannot be crossed. Um, you know, so again, the, the, the way in which their relationship is a model for that thing which they accomplished, and then of course ultimately the transcending of death itself and the fate of the, of the kindreds. The way in which uh, Baron's race is again connected with the, the theme of self-sacrifice, which again is dominant in the story. Um, uh, and then ultimately with, with joy and with union uh, and the ultimate, though sad, catastrophic ending of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, it's, again, all of these things, all of those things which are so fundamental um, absolutely essential elements to the story of Baron and Luthien are tied in with Baron's race. Remove that element, make him an elf, and the story is totally different. No matter how similar many of the events in, in it may be, um, it is fundamentally, fundamentally different. Let me give, uh, let me give an illustration. Um... I was trying to think of how to illustrate this, and here's the, here's the best that I came up with. Let's t- take take a simple example. Let's take the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Okay, now now think of the story of Little Red Riding Hood, and then we'll just make one small change to the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right? And this change that we will make is we're going to take the little girl who is the central character of the story, and we're going to replace her with Conan the Barbarian. Okay, so picture. Picture a young Arnold Schwarzenegger cast in the place of R- Little Red Riding Hood. So it's Big Red Riding Hood, right? Um, but other than that, all of the details of the story can be exactly the same. He can carry a little basket of goodies. He can be visiting his grandma, and there's the bad wolf. He could even he could even deliver the same lines, right? He could, you know, he could be like, grandma. <laughs> What big eyes you have, right? It could be fake, and that you know the woodsman. You know he often has a lackey, whatever. Um, it could be completely right. <laughs> Buy crumb, grandma. Exactly, Tom. That's it. Um, <laughs> that, that obviously, it's a completely different story when you do that, right? I mean, it's again, it's not that you couldn't make such a story. Indeed, it's easy to make such a story, right? Um, but it's a completely different kind of story. Um, uh, even if everything else remains the same. Um, but again, the, the point is that one... So, I mean, I think, you know, I can imagine that there would might be some who would think like, well, but it still has a lot of the same elements, right? Um, it does have the same elements, but it is... Um, but I just I, I I cannot express how profound I think the difference is uh, between those two stories, and that I cannot even think of them as the same story. And to me, this is why it's, that's why I start with this, um, because this is to me the big divide between the Book of Lost Tales version uh, and the later uh, the later Quenta uh, and Silmarillion versions. And this is why to me. Comparing those two stories, comparing even even the next version, even the Lay of Lathian, even the poetic version, um, which is already on the other side of the Great Divide, um, uh, even you know, so comparing this version with any of those is more like comparing two kind of similar, you know, parallel stories, um, but you know, but it's not, but you're not comparing, you're not comparing the same story, um, so. 
what I want to do tonight is I want to be basically asking that question, what, what is this story, then? What is this story about? Um, again, if we're looking for the Silmarillion story, if we're looking for that kind of story, if we're th- we have, you know, I, 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 we all come to this story, I assume. There may be some of you out there who are, uh, uh, you know, attending this class who have never read the Silmarillion, um, in which case you're going to uh, have a, a bizarre relationship uh, with the <laughs> with Tolkien's early material, I have to say. But anyway, um, I'm assuming that most of us are coming in with the story of Baron and Luthien, you know, from the Silmarillion, very much in mind. Um, but I think that it's going to be easy for that to bias us, right? It's like a completely different genre of story, right? I mean, again, it's it's. Like, I mean, in, I would even almost think of it that way, like in like in uh, movie genres, right? the different expectations or, you know, the different way that you can expect, you know, an action movie to go compared to a romantic comedy, right? You know, sort of the different conventions um, of how those kinds of stories are put together. The differences between this story and the later story are, to me, at least that profound. Um, And, uh, uh, anyway, so I, um, uh, what I want to do is try to focus on what, then, what are we getting here? It's not just like a minor league version of the Lathian story, right? Of the later um, story of Baron and Luthien. Um, if this is not, I think, at all just a question of, you know, he's not quite getting it yet. You know, this still needs some work uh, in order for it to really have the impact that the story will have later. It's not a question of that. It's not a question of this is a C-plus version of the Luthien story. This is a fundamentally different story than that. So what is it? What exactly are we getting? Um, and uh, I want to start looking at some of those details there um, with uh, by kind of taking up... Uh, well, it's not like, uh, exactly a challenge that Christopher Tolkien uh, lays down, but I kind of take it as a challenge, uh, and, and I hope you'll join me uh, in it. So uh, one more Christopher Tolkien passage before we, uh, before we come back to the original here. Uh, he's talking about Baron's uh, appearance before Tinwilling for the first time. Despite these radical differences in the narrative structure, it is remarkable how many features of the scene in Tinwilling's hall, when Baron stood before the king, endured while all the inner. Uh, sorry, I'll come in again. It is remarkable how many features of the scene in Tinwilling's hall, when Baron stood before the king, endured, while all the inner significance was shifted and enlarged. To the beginning. To the beginning, go back, for instance, Baron's abashment in silence, to Nuviel's answering for him, the sudden rising of his courage, and uttering of his desire without preamble or hesitation. But the tone is altogether lighter and less grave than it afterwards became, in the jeering laughter of Tinwellant, who treats the matter as a jest and Baron as a benighted fool, there is no hint of what is explicit in the later story. Thus he wrought the doom of Doriath, and was ensnared within the curse of Mandos. The Silmarils are indeed famous, and they have a holy power, but the fate of the world is not bound up with them. Baron is an elf, if of a feared and distrusted people, and his request lacks the deepest dimension of outrage, and he and Tenuviel are not lovers. Um, okay. Um, the cha- First of all, I... I, I 
Christopher Tolkien is uh, is again he's 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 spot on on this again. Uh, Tolkien was amazing at this, um, and this is a trend I've pointed to in in, in several places. Um, I, and I, I talked about it a little bit, you know, in in, in one scene in my Hobbit book. Uh, I remember talking about this at Mythmoot last year, or some too. Tolkien's impulse. <laughs> People talk a lot about Tolkien being a perfectionist and going back and revising and revising. He's always tinkering with stuff. And it's true he's always tinkering with stuff. But it's really pretty remarkable how little he actually changes. Sometimes he makes radical changes. not saying he never does. But it's, to me, kind of amazing how much a writing of his, you know, something that he drafted um, and then rewrote and rewrote until it is completely different. And yet, how much of the original material he will retain, uh, exactly as Christopher Tolkien is describing here, the way in which the later Silmarillion story follows exactly the same pattern. It's like the, the original elements are all right there, just completely different. And with, uh, uh, with, uh, with you know, as he says, while well, all the inner significance is shifted. Um, Tolkien was amazing at doing this. One other place you can see this, for instance, um, read the very first drafts of chapter one of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. When he was sitting down to try to write a sequel to The Hobbit, like in the in the style of The Hobbit, when all he had in mind was like, you know, The Hobbit, the adventure continues, right? Um, that's where the whole, that whole tone of chapter one of The Fellowship of the Ring comes from. And you know the number of whole phrases and sentences which will pop up at you from that very 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 first rough draft um in which the concepts are completely different and everything is is but yet he kept them he kept them he'd never just like pitched it and started writing again from scratch he just kept tinkering and playing with it uh until it actually said something completely different. Um, he just, he does this all the time, and I find it amazing. Um, but, um, but anyway, let's, um, let's take up the challenge here and actually look at these two passages. Um, you know, he gives a kind of a summary of similarities and differences. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper than he goes here. Um, I want to, um, uh, I want to actually look at the passages here for a second. Okay, maybe not a second. Maybe more than a second. Version A. Here's the Book of Lost Tales version. When, however, Baron found himself before the king, he was abashed, and of the stateliness of Queen Gwendolyn, he was in great awe. And behold, when the king said, Who art thou that stumbleth into my halls unbidden? He had naught to say. Tenuvio answered him there, answered therefore for him, saying, This, my father, is Baron, a wanderer from beyond the hills, and he would learn to dance as the elves of Artenor can dance. And she laughed. But the king frowned when he heard whence Baron came, and he said, Put away thy light words, my child, and say, Has this wild elf of shadows sought to do thee any harm? Nay, father, said she, and I think there is not evil in his heart at all. And be thou not harsh with him, unless thou desirest to see thy daughter Tenuvio weep, for more wonder has he at my dancing than any that I have known. Therefore, said Tinwellent now, O Baron, son of the Noldoli, what dost thou desire of the elves of the wood, ere thou returnest whence thou camest? 
So great was the amazed joy of Baron's heart when Tenuviel spake thus for him to her father, that his courage rose within him, and his adventurous spirit that had brought him out of Hisalome and over the mountains of iron awoke again. And looking boldly upon Tinwellant, he said, Why, O king, I desire thy daughter Tenuvio, for she is the fairest and most sweet of all maidens I have seen or dreamed of. Then there was a silence in the hall, save that Dairon laughed, and all who heard were astounded, but Tenuvio cast down her eyes, and the king glancing at wild at the wild and rugged aspect of Baron burst also into laughter, whereat Baron flushed for shame, and Tenuvio's heart was sore for him. Okay. Um, what I want to be doing here, I'm going to read both passages. Make observations, right? For, I want you to, 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 to write to me here and tell me um, what are the things that you notice, specific details now, that you notice about these two passages. Um, and then we'll see if we can't, uh, you know, get at a little bit more, you know, what, how can we, how, how would we characterize some of the different things that Tolkien is doing in these two admittedly very closely parallel passages. Here's the Silmarillion version. But Baron, being filled with dread, for the splendor of Menegroth and the majesty of Thingol were very great, answered nothing. Therefore Luthien spoke and said, He is Baron, son of Barahir, lord of men, mighty foe of Morgoth, the tale of whose deeds is become a song even among the elves. Let Baron speak, said Thingol. What would you hear, unhappy mortal? And for what cause have you left your own land to enter this, which is forbidden to such as you? Can you show reason why my power should not be laid on you in heavy punishment for your insolence and folly? Then Baron, looking up, beheld the eyes of Luthien, and his glance went also to the face of Melian, and it seemed to him that words were put into his mouth. Fear left him, and the pride of the eldest house of men returned to him, and he said, My fate, O king, led me hither, through perils such as few even of the elves would dare, and here I have found what I sought not indeed, but finding I would possess for ever. For it is above all gold and silver, and beyond all jewels. Neither rock nor steel nor the fires of Morgoth, nor all the powers of the elf kingdoms, shall keep me from the treasure that I desire. For Luthien, your daughter, is the fairest of all the children of the world. Then silence fell upon the hall, for those that stood there were astounded and afraid, and they thought that Baron would be slain. Okay. Similarities, differences. Tell me what you notice. Let's see if we can if we can make some specific observations and try to get at what we see going on here. Um, okay, good. Yana points out, and I agree, Luthien's role seems to be downplayed in the later version. She gets a parallel speech, right? Again, Christopher's absolutely right. Um, and, and by the way, I hope you all understand. I'm, I refer to him as Christopher, not uh, through any slighting sense of familiarity, but just in order to distinguish him from his father. Um, Christopher is absolutely right to point out um, that, that, again, how closely parallel these uh, these scenes are. She she has a, a, a speech in the same place, um, but Yana, I agree with you that her role is downplayed. She has less of a role in the later version. Her speech is less long, um, and Michael, as you point out, Melian's role, she doesn't 
say anything or even actually do anything. Um, but it's not just you know. Again, if you if we if we go back, I'm to be have have to be sort of flipping back and forth here. Um, if we go back to the Book of Lost Tales version, remember um, the amazed joy of Baron's heart when Tenuvial spake thus for him, that his courage rose within him. Right. It's 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 all about Tenuvial, right? And his and his joy at hearing her speak up for him, whereas he. He's behold. He beholds her eyes, right? So he, it's sort of similar there, but his glance also goes to the face of Melian, and words are put into his mouth. That's very different, right? This is not just him plucking up his courage. Um, though again, we get the very the very close parallelism, right? Um, uh, his adventurous spirit that had brought him, you know, uh, uh, brought him out of Hisalomian over the mountains of iron, right? Um, compared to um, the pride of the eldest house of men returned to him, uh, right? So there's that, you know, that sense of his dignity. Um, but, um, but Kit, I agree. I think, you know, Kit says, uh, fate is a major point, right? The first one is a straightforward love story. The second one is about fate rather than about love. Um, yeah, at least I, th- I certainly think that the, the sort of the story of, the f- of, of Baron's fate there does seem to kind of trump um, this again, that the words being put in his mouth thing seems to me like a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, <laughs> Karina's noting how uh, how much lower in pitch my voice was when I read the Silmarillion version. I can't help that. <laughs> I try not to, but I can't help it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, good. Patrick was pointing out too about Melian's role, um, uh, and how important that is. Good. Um, Arthur points out that in the Silmarillion version, the audacity of Baron is a much bigger deal. Of course, yes, because uh, uh, because he, he's a man. Um, the the issues in the uh, in the older version. Um, it's uh, there's laughter, right? They mock him, but the mockery. It's it's funny because it's like the the reaction is almost more extreme. I mean, everyone's thinking Baron is just going to get killed outright, so that's admittedly would be a more extreme reaction. Um, but the laughter. I mean, they don't mock Baron. Nobody laughs at him, probably because in the second version it's too appalling to laugh at. Um, but Dairon appears to find the thing funny. Um, the Dairon laughs, and all who heard were astounded. Um, and the king, glancing at the wild and rugged aspect of Baron, burst also into laughter. Um, does this mean that he thinks um, Baron below her? You know, that's less obvious to me. I mean... Th- it's presumptuous for him to come in and say, "Hey, I'm going to marry your, da- you know, I, I, I'm going to marry your daughter." But it's there's not, in, it doesn't seem to me a really clear hierarchy here. I mean, he is a king, and Baron's not a king, so there's that. But you know, he's one of the Noldoli. They don't trust them, right? They they look on them with suspicion. Uh, so that's, um, you know, that's. An important thing, but again, it's it's not like, how dare you? Uh, it's there's not that that element um, is absolutely not there. And what's the effect of that now? 
keep pushing. What, how does that change things? What, again, what I want to come back to is what is the book of, the book of Lost Tales version? What is this story? What kind of story are we reading? Um, uh, you know, Kit was, as it was already saying, um, it's a, more of a straightforward love story than a story about fate and destiny. Um, that's, that's one good conclusion. What, what does that, that lack of laughter, um, that change in the quality of the reaction to Baron's sort of proposal? Um, yeah. Tom points out the difference in the characterization of, uh, of Luthien and Tenuvio, um, that Luthien's speech is quite regal compared to Tenuvio, who is girlish and demure. Um, absolutely. I mean, think about the difference between um, who, the tale of whose deeds has become a song even among the elves, uh, you know, to uh, um, unless thou desirest to see thy daughter Tenuvio weep. You know, be thou not harsh with him unless thou desirest to see thy daughter Tenuvio weep. Um, don't be angry with him or I'll cry. Um, girlish, Tom, I agree. Uh, Carita was already saying that Tenuvio sounds much, much younger, um, much more like a child. Uh, and, and I think that's certainly that's certainly true. But okay, so what? Um, this was uh, uh, in my undergraduate essay marking days. This was my famous question. So what? Now, what does that tell us? Um, what does that suggest to us about the Book of Lost Tales story? What conclusion does that lead us on to? Um, Carita also points out the difference between dread and abashment. Um, that's, uh, yeah, so in the Book of Lost Tales version, when, when he found himself before the king, he was abashed, and of the stateliness of Queen Gwendolyn, he was in great awe, as opposed to being filled with dread, for the splendor of Minagroth and the majesty of Thingol were very great. Right? Um, again, Carita, it's describing kind of the same thing, right? Um, but it's but there's a pretty significant difference dread is a that's a weighty word right um he's abashed especially remember the the context of that he didn't know he was being brought in baron at least knew he was being brought before the king um when he is brought before the king is finds it a kind of overwhelming experience but um, Baron, in the Lost Tales version, didn't even know that he was... So he finds himself before the king, and he's like, Oh, oh snap! <laughs> um, hi! Uh, and he's... Again, I'm tempted, Carita, to go... You know, the abashment versus dread thing. To go back to the more sort of childlike um, element of the Book of Lost Tales story compared to the doom and destiny element uh, of the uh, Silmarillion version. Um, uh, yeah, Ed asks, um, does the original story echo Tolkien's own story with Edith? Are the timelines correct for the story to be based on his own prohibition on seeing Edith? Yes, yes, they are. Um, and uh, uh, this is why Baron and Luthien are on their tombstones. Um, you know, it's why he had the name Luthien carved on his wife's tombstone when she died before he did, uh, and um, 
and you know he the the scene of Baron, uh, you know, seeing Luthien or Tenuvio and later Luthien um, dancing in the woods, and of course again, as Christopher Tolkien emphasized, that scene changes very little um, in in almost any of its details. Um, that is the scene of him actually. Uh, the actual description of Tenuvio or Luthien dancing is almost identical throughout the history of that story, and that central element um, is based on a uh, an incident from his courtship with his wife. Um, so, yeah, no, that's that's he's already he was what eighteen, I think, when he was forbidden to see Edith by his guardian. Um, uh, she was older than he was. Um, so yeah, I mean that's already several years in the past um, by now, um, uh, but um, yeah. So I mean, so Ed, that does that does match up. Okay, let's see. Let's keep going here. Um, good, good. And I know there are lots of people saying lots of things. I'm not going to have time to look at all of them. Um, uh, so if I miss your comment, or if you also made a point that I'm talking about. I apologize for uh, not catching it. Um, oh, Thomas Calusa makes a wonderful parallel. I love that, Thomas. Uh, Thomas says, uh, the first Baron is like Bilbo wanting to qualify Gandalf's recommendation as a burglar when he is moved to speak. Baron two is like Frodo in the council when another seems to supply his voice or words. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's like, uh, Bilbo putting his foot in it versus, uh, Frodo, you know, uh, speaking in a voice which he's not really sure is his own at the Council of Elrond. Yeah, I love that. I love that parallel. I think that, you know, um, Bilbo at the Unexpected Party versus Frodo at the Council of Elrond, um, that's a really cool parallel, actually, I think. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's not exact in all ways, but, um, but that does seem to me to kind of touch on the spirit. I like that. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, good, let's see. Um, let me see. I'm just sort of skimming through things. Um, okay. Josh Evans is asking, are they lovers in the second reading, as Christopher suggests? Well, yes. I, I think that what... Um, I think what Christopher is stating is they're not... Um, there's not been any consensual... Like, they're not... <laughs> in Book of Lost Tales version, they're still in that kind of like awkward place where like, you know, they kind of like each other and everybody kind of knows that they like each other, but they're not like a f they're not like Facebook official yet, you know. Um whereas they're like a thing in the Silmarillion already, right? Um uh that scene in the Silmarillion where she puts her hand in his, right? That's kind of a big deal. Um 
and there's this there's this clear sense of you know the two of them are officially together already um it's not a question of you know thingle may believe that he is attempting to prevent this relationship but of course that's one of the things that he misunderstands from the beginning the relationship is happening already she is already committed to him and he to her um and he's you know sort of attempting to stand against that but there's no point that's not the case in the Book of Lost Tales version. I think Christopher's right to emphasize that. There's heavy flirtation going on, right? They clearly like each other and everything, but there's no sense... Um, you know, the way that she leads... You know, that Luthien leads Baron in before her father in state, right? He's, he's, he's captured and going to be led in as a prisoner, but instead she takes and leads him before the throne. I mean, there's this... You know, there's... The... Uh, in the later version, it's like an official meet the parents kind of thing <laughs> as far as Barrett and Luthien are concerned. Awkward, admittedly, but it's a meet the parents situation, right? Not the case in the Book of Lost Tales version. Um, that's why he's abashed. You know, they're playing. They're chasing each other around, right? And she's like, come dance with me, come dance with me. We and, and and she's running away dancing and he's chasing her and this is a thing they do, we're told. Um, and then, uh, except that day, she dances all the way into the king's throne room. tee and, uh, uh, and he's abashed, like, oh, shoot, here we are. I thought we were dancing. Um, so, uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, Josh, that's what I take, uh, the, the, that's how I understand that distinction there. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah, as Carita says, uh, thinking about uh, the abashed and the dread thing again. Uh, she said, I am abashed when I talk to my parents-in-law. I'm filled with dread when I meet someone in great authority. Um, right, right, uh, uh. Yeah. Oh, good. And Tim uh, Tim Fisher said, "Abashed is his own his own his own embarrassment. Dread is about awe at his surroundings." It's a really good distinction, Tim. Um, okay. Good. Um, um, yeah. Yes, Carita. Tee hee. Don't you think tee hee fits the fits the tone of the Book of Lost? Couldn't you imagine Tenuvial saying? T-? She doesn't actually say tee hee. That wasn't a quotation. But you could imagine her saying tee hee, right? Um, I, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's. You're right. Luthien would not tee hee, but Tenuvial certainly would tee hee. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I. Oh, um, uh, okay. Um, a couple of people are asking about uh, what do we mean by lovers here. I really cannot but imagine that uh, Baron and Luthien were loving with a chaste love. I do not believe, I certainly do not believe uh, that Christopher Tolkien, for instance, when saying that they are not yet lovers, means that they're not sleeping together. Um, so, uh, I, it, no, no, I don't think that that's really an issue anywhere. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, while not wholly irrelevant to the Baron and Luthien story, I think is, um, uh, is is largely, um, yeah. And <laughs> Laura's saying she can't think of she can't hear Tihi anymore without thinking of the Miller's Tale. Laura, I, I agree. I admit I was thinking of Emma, of uh, of Allison too, 
but um, yeah, sorry. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. So now I, I, I do think um, I, I, I do think that uh, lover simply means basically both of them like committed to each other. Basically, um, they're not they're not com- they're not openly t- committed to each other. They both like each other, but they're definitely not committed to each other there. Um, but as I was saying, that the, the sexual we'll come back to the sexual thing next time. Um, in particular, as regards the really creepy scene in Morgoth's throne room. Um, but uh, it's next time, next time, not tonight. Um, well, let's 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 go back a bit. This was this was this was a good start. Let's let's keep going by moving backwards a little, um, and uh, look at the way that their story is brought in. So, back to the beginning of the story here. I, and again, what I want to be looking at is is the tone. What kind of story are we reading? What kind of cues are we getting as readers about these characters? About this story? Our first paragraph. Two children had Tinwellenthen, Dairon and Tinuvio. And Tinuvio was a maiden, and the most beautiful of all the maidens of the hidden elves. And indeed, few have been so fair, for her mother was a fay, a daughter of the gods. But Dairon was then a boy strong and merry, and above all things he delighted to play upon a pipe of reeds or other woodland instruments, and he is named now among the three most magic players of the elves, and the others are Tinfang Warble and Ivare, who plays beside the sea. But Tenuviel's joy was rather in the dance, and no names are set with hers for the beauty and subtlety of her twinkling feet. Okay. Um, this is our introduction to, to Tenuviel. What do you notice about it? Tell me, what, what strikes you as important about this paragraph? Yeah, Carita, she's got those twinkling feet. Right, that's, uh, that's a staple for Tenuviel. The fact that her feet twinkle. Um, yes, Nancy, I absolutely agree. Um, Nancy says even the suggestion that anyone rivals Tenuviel's beauty is very strange to Silmarillion readers. Absolutely. Um, one of the, the fundamental framework of the Baron and Luthien story is that Luthien is not just an elf maiden. She's not just an elf princess. She's not just the elf princess daughter of a goddess but she is also the most beautiful elf maiden ever to live or whoever will right so i mean this is there are, uh, there's a small number of elves who get that kind of superlative the the most blank of all of the children of Iluvatar, right um luthien is a major one of those most beautiful that's a big deal um Tenuvio is not that. That is not the frame that we get here, right? Um, she is uh, the most beautiful of all the maidens of the hidden elves. Okay, so among the hidden elves, of her kind of elf, she is the most beautiful. But even, notice how that's almost undermined, not exactly undermined, but contextualized, and indeed few have been so fair. Nancy, as you say, I was like, wait, wait, few? Like any? Seriously? Um... Yeah, the only thing absolutely superlative about her, as uh, as uh, 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 Sarah points out, um, is uh, her feet, right? As Sarah King points out, only her feet are the most beautiful and subtle and twinkling, right? Um, her dancing is superlative. Um, but again, notice even the way that Dairon's music is praised. 
seems to suggest uh, that, that kind of parallel context, right? Dairon is a wonderful, wonderful musician, right? Um, he's named now among the three most magic players of the elves. So he's not the greatest. He's one of the three greatest. And not the greatest of all, but only of the elves. And remember that that word is being used quite differently in the Book of Lost Tales. This is where things get confusing. Um, most likely, by using the word el- the word elf is not a generic word in Book of Lost Tales language. Fairy is a more generic word in Book of Lost Tales parlance than elf. Um, remember the little dispute they had at the beginning about what language the names should be in, right? The, the children in the frame story? Um, you know, this is a story of the gnomes. Don't uh, uh, don't give me any of your elvish names, right? Elvish meaning that other language that is the hidden elves. Um, they're different from that's so elf as distinct from Noldoli. Okay, um, so uh, uh, so again, it's clear that the sort of the the context and 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 Fay. Um, uh, F A Y, not F E Y. Um, that also is a is is a, a very particular piece of vocabulary. Fay is not a synonym of fairy. Fairy means an elf. What Tolkien will later call elves when he ditches the word fairy entirely. A fay is one of the gods. So so if someone is a fay, they're what will probably they are probably what will later be called a Maya. Um, Gandalf would have been a fay. Um, uh, Million is a fae, um, and you know the Balrogs were originally fays. Uh, those are those are those are all, you know, the 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 people of the gods. Fairies, generically, that which would be called elves, but elves specifically mean that subset of the elves. Um, so okay, the point is, as Tim Fisher says, she's not transcendent. Um, she's really great but not absolutely special. And that is... And Yana says, uh, how is this a gnome story, though? Baron is, is is the only gnome in the story. I agree, Yana, that seems strange to me, too. Uh, I'm, you know, one would be tempted to go to the kid who said that and be like, dude, support your argument. How is this a gnomish story? Um, uh, but anyway, there might be something I'm not understanding there, but Yana, I don't know the answer to that question. Um... Anyhow, okay. So again, context. How are we prompted to think about Tenuvio here? She is famously beautiful, and she is a superlative dancer, but she is not a great and legendary figure, right? Um, Slightly superlative. Um, The framework is more... As Sarah says, it's, it's a story, not a myth, right? It does not have that, you know, that and she is the most beautiful woman of all time, right, already gives it that mythic, you know, all you have to do is say, most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar, and the myth meter is, you know, goes way to max, right, Um, for the initial framework of the story. Not so this. In fact, it sounds the phrase that, um, the phrase that several of you have been throwing out, with which I generally agree, is it's much more like a fairy tale. Um, <laughs> um, a couple of you uh, are mentioning, basically she's like a, she's a pretty princess, right? You know, are, 
Arthur says she's a she's like a Disney princess. Yes, yes, I I that makes me twitch in a lot of different ways, but I see in general what you mean. Um, um, that does seem to be the the sort of the the, the sort of the context of it. Um, let's uh, let's and also even notice the way two children, right? Um, if the frame of this, the brother and sister, the one who plays and the other who dances, what uh, sweet, Karita, that's your word. It's a uh, it's it's very sweet, isn't it? Um, Thomas Calusa says the words "once upon a time" would not be terribly out of place at the beginning of this story. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, once upon a time, there were a brother and sister, an elf prince and princess named Diron and Tenuvial, and he played and was one of the most magic players. And she was one of the most beautiful. She was the most beautiful of all of the elves of her kingdom. Right? Doesn't it sound? Quite, uh, quite like that. Um, that does seem to be our general context here. Then Baron wanders in. Never have I heard how Baron came thither over the hills. Yet was he braver than most. <laughs> Sorry, I can bear. It's just like these are the moments where you just like you have to like forcibly shove aside all memories of the Silmarillion story in order to to enter into the spirit of this, right? I mean, to think you cannot be imagining Baron Camlost, uh, you know, the, you know the the Baron of the Silmarillion, you know, holding up his maimed arm and being like, oh, "I shall call myself the Empty-handed." Like he was braver than most. Um, yet he was braver than most. Yet was he braver than most, as thou shalt hear. And twas the love of wandering, maybe, and was twas the love of wandering, maybe, alone, that had sped him through the terrors of the Iron Mountains until he reached the lands beyond. Now, Baron was a gnome, son of Egnor the forester, who hunted in the darker places in the north of Hisalome. Dread and suspicion was between the Eldar, that is, the, the, the elves, and those of their kindred that had tasted the slavery of Melko, and in this did the evil deed of the gnomes at the Haven of the Swans revenge itself. Now the lies of Melko ran among Baron's folk so that they believed evil things of the secret elves. Yet now did he see Tenuviel dancing in the twilight, and Tenuviel was in a silver pearly dress, and her bare white feet were twinkling among the hemlock stems. Then Baron cared not whether she were Vala or elf or child of man, and crept near to see and he leant against a young elm that grew upon a mound so that he might look down into the little glade where she was dancing, for the enchantment made him faint. That beginning, right? Uh, um, I, don't, I don't know how Baron came there, right? Did he do any significant deeds beforehand? I, you know, uh, yeah... Like, we have this, like, that image sped him through the terrors of the Iron Mountains. Like, it's a big deal, crossing the Iron Mountains. There are terrors there, right? What was it that made him cross? You know, an adventurous spirit, like, ennui, I don't know. Like, he just liked wandering. That's why he's here, for no particular reason. We talk about this is not a doom-laced story. It's like the absolute opposite of that, right? Um, um, uh, Thomas, I'm wanting to say once upon a time here again, right? Maybe we start with that first paragraph and then say, once upon a time, Baron came hither, came thither over the hills, right? Um, he was braver than most, and anyway, one day he just kind of came wandering through. Um, 
and uh, it's you know the sort of the the the, the happenstance of it um, th- reminds me you know thing you know you guys have been making Hobbit parallels th- it reminds me of the introduction of Gandalf right um, you know when Gandalf the wizard came by um, you know one day back in you know uh, you know when uh, when there was less noise and more green um, again that 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 tone strikes me as um, as kind of similar but Baron is enchanted, right? The enchantment of Baron, the description of her beauty while dancing and his enchantment. Um, though, uh, again, we see very little in the way of awe here, right? He doesn't care who she is. You know, he does not look upon her and say, oh, she must be a goddess or something, right? He looks at her and says, I don't care who she is, right? I mean, wow. Right? Just, I don't care. Is she Vala Elford, child of man? It doesn't matter to me. Like, is this? Is she above me? Is she below me? I don't care. All I know is, man, those feet are twinkling like nothing I've ever seen, right? Um, you know, he's, um, again, it's it's, it's the, the good Sarah Lagarde points out there's a lot of faint praise of both Baron and Tenuvio. Um, yes, yes, good. Um, I, I agree. I think that that's a, that that's that that's really important there. Um, but again, I want to um, I want <laughs> I want to um, come back to the uh, issue of Baron's race here again. Far from Baron, the man, the you know the wanted uh, outlaw, the um, you know the grief, uh, the, the 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 grieving, suffering soul remnant of his kindred and everything, coming in and seeing this, you know, divine apparently divine creature before him. There's no question in Baron's mind that he's uh, he's looking up, <laughs> right? Um, that's less obvious here. Baron is enchanted by her, but. It's, it's not clear to me whether or not he's actually slumming, right? He might... In fact, he kind of thinks, maybe I am, right? Maybe she's way below me, right? Maybe it's maybe this is a human woman. Maybe she's she is of the children of men. But I don't care, right? I mean, so long as, like, you know, her feet are really twinkly, so, like, why does that matter? Um, again, it's, it's this is just another one of those examples of where his race profoundly changes the story. Um, it's not a story of him being taken out of himself and rising above his, you know, his uh, his sort of place or destiny, or being drawn into higher and greater and more beautiful things. As far as, you know, a, in the story that we've gotten so far, in this sort of fairy tale beginning, he's just a random wanderer who is, uh, who's kind of got restless feet, and who, wandering through, sees this beautiful-footed woman dancing and is like, hey, that looks really beautiful. Where is this story going to go? You know, are they equally matched? Are they unequally matched? In what direction are they unequally matched? Not an issue, really. Not something this story seems to be at all interested in, actually. Um, Okay, so let's keep going. Look at, uh, she... Uh, you know, her brother just runs away, right? Her brother is just flat terrified of this, like, rugged-looking elf. A couple of you also have commented on uh, uh, the idea of 
the application of the adjective rugged to the noun elf uh, uh, is, is, is seems a little bit a little bit uh, um, sort of odd. But anyway, you know, he looks a little, a, a little wild. So Dairon runs away. But so here's their relationship developing. Then Baron took to following Tenuviel secretly through the woods, even to the entrance of the cave in the bridge's head. And when she was gone, he would cry across the stream, softly saying, Tenuviel, for he had caught the name from Dairon's lips. And although he knew it not, Tenuviel often hearkened from within the shadows of the cavernous doors, and laughed softly, or smiled. At length one day, as she danced alone, he stepped out more boldly, and said to her, Tenuviel, teach me to dance. "'Who art thou?' said she. "'Baron, I am from across the bitter hills.' "'Then if thou wouldst dance, follow me,' said the maiden. And she danced before Baron away, and away into the woods, nimbly and yet not so fast that he could not follow, and ever and anon she would look back and laugh at him, stumbling after, saying, "'Dance, Baron, dance!' as they dance beyond the bitter hills. In this way they came by winding paths to the abode of Tinwellant, and Tenuviel beckoned Baron beyond the stream, and he followed her wandering down into the cave and the deep halls of her home, and finds himself confronting his future in-laws, quite to his surprise. Um, now, both Arthur and Carita think that stalker Baron is a little bit creepy. Um, uh, uh, well, Yes, I mean, looked at from one point of view. Um, but I actually think that that's rather charmingly handled in this story. Um, it's not just a question of, like, creepy, uh, uh, rugged guy in woods leaping out of bushes and grabbing at her or something, or, or voyeuristically, um, uh, you know, watching her through the leaves. Um, he calls to her. Um, he follows her. She knows that he's following her. He, she li- apparently likes her following him. Even before they finally have that exchange, when he steps out more boldly and actually addresses her, um, that seems to be only kind of formalizing something that they, you know, this kind of courtship that they already seem to have been doing. So, um, uh, all I guess I would say is. It's a little less creepy than it could be. I mean, I, you know, Jewel thinks that she's leading him on, and I agree. I don't think it's just a question of him stalking her. Certainly not. Um, um, certainly not uh, unilaterally. Anyway, um, yeah, she is running not quite fast enough to shake him off her trail, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, it's very cute. It it does seem again to come back to words that have kept popping up in our discussion. It does seem very childlike, right? I mean, doesn't this kind of sound more like a middle school flirtation, like I'll chase you around the playground kind of thing, right? Um, and I'll run fast enough to not quite let you catch me, but not quite to leave you behind either. Um, I mean, it's 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 more of that kind of a flavor, certainly than high romance, right? Um, there are no great speeches being delivered here. Um, this is nothing out of a Shakespearean romance here. Um, I, Patrick, that's a wonderful word. There, Patrick Summer says there's an innocence to it. Absolutely, I agree. Um, uh, if thou wouldst dance, follow me. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, and uh, Sarah, I agree with you. Sarah Lagarde says, I think it's clear that she could have easily outrun Baron if she wished. Uh, I agree. I do also find that um, implicit. Yana adds an, 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 an important point, I think. Patrick Summers had said there's an innocence to it, with which I agreed. Yana adds almost a naivete, uh, and I think that that's also true. Um, Tenuvio is naive, and I think that's one of the things that we can see in those two, in the Meet the Parents scenes that we were looking at before, right? I mean, that whole, like, don't be harsh with him unless you want to see me cry, right? There's something very naive about that. Um, certainly, I mean, obviously that naivete isn't there uh, in uh, uh, in the published Silmarillion, but um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's definitely not only innocent, but it does... They, they do go, I think, off on that side. Um, there are times in this story when Baron and Luthien, you know, not only are they not superlative, as we were seeing, they're neither one of them especially heroic, you know? In fact, they're at times almost like the opposite of heroic. Um, anyway, let's... Uh, Let's keep going. So now here's Baron. He sets out on his quest, right? And, uh, you know, so so father-in-law has said, hey, uh, bring back a Silmaril. I hear they're pretty cool. Bring me back a Silmaril and you can have my daughter. And he's like, okay, I'll go get a Silmaril. So he goes up and he's having a hard time of it, right? And he gets really hungry. And so he's trying to steal food from orcs. But then finally the orcs catch him eventually. So he gets brought before Melkor. So here's Baron being... Um, interrogated by Melkor. So it came. So, sorry. So came it that Baron was dragged before Melko, and he bore a stout heart with him nonetheless, within him nonetheless, for it was a belief among his father's kindred that the power of Melko would not abide forever, but the Valar would hearken at last to the tears of the Noldoli, and would arise and bind Melko, and open Valinor once more to the weary elves, and great joy should come back upon earth. Baron, seeing his peril, answered, Think not, O most mighty Ainu Melko, lord of the world, that this can be true. For an it were then, I, should I not be here unaided and alone? No friendship. That is, Melko is just accused, the part I skipped there, is Melko accusing him of being like a conspirator in a plot against him. Um, especially a, a conspirator with those nasty men. No friendship has Baron, son of Egnor, with a kindred of men. Nay, indeed, wearying utterly of the lands infested by that folk, he has wandered out of Ariador. Many a great tale has my father made to me aforetime of thy splendor and glory. Wherefore, albeit I am no renegade thrall, I do desire nothing so much as to serve thee in what small manner I may. And Baron said therewith that he was a great trapper of small animals and a snarer of birds, and had become lost in the hills in these pursuits, until after much wandering he had come into strange lands, and even had not the orcs seized him, he would indeed have had no other reed of safety but to approach the majesty of Ainu Melko, and beg him to grant him some humble office, as a winner of meats for his table, perchance. Now the Valar must have inspired that speech, or perchance it was a spell of cunning words cast upon him in compassion by Gwendoling, for indeed it saved his life, and Melko, marking his hardy frame, believed him, and was willing to accept him as a thrall of his kitchens.
again, make the effort of will and imagination to thrust utterly from your mind, uh, you know, Baron the Renegade, who by himself single-heartedly defied Melko and Sauron, his lieutenant, until Sauron was compelled to lead an entire invading army to pursue him alone uh, and chase him. No, we're not there, right? Um, Where we are is... Well, where are we, exactly? Is Baron just a coward? Because, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be hard to do an uncharitable reading of this passage, right? No, oh, Melko, am, am I your enemy? No, I'm not your enemy. In fact, I was just coming to look for a job, because I heard that, you know, you're hiring and stuff, and... Um, I thought it would... I've always really wanted nothing more than to work for you, actually. Because um, your dad said that you're awesome, and I think it would be great to work... So my highest career ambition uh, is to be your humble servant, Omelko. Um, how are we supposed to take... I don't... I, I called a reading of Baron as coward... Uh, as a as an uncharitable reading, indeed. I mean, I think it's one that the text won't support. You might privately think him a coward, perhaps, if you like. I suppose, but the clear promptings of the story are not that, right? Um, now, the Valar must have inspired that speech. Is pretty darn clear that um, the speech is not supposed to be something we're supposed to be looking down on, right? We're not supposed to be looking askance at Baron because he made that speech. Rather. Um, we're supposed to admire it. Um, in fact, even to believe that it was inspired directly by the Valar themselves. Um, th- something in the tone here makes me want to say this passage is very Book of Lost Tales. Right? Um, we were looking in the last class at how much more human the Valar were um, how the point of view of the story, whereas in the published Silmarillion, the point of view of the story is at the, about the level of the elves, um, and we're looking up from a, yeah, at a very great distance at the Valar, who are far above us, and although we hear many of the things that we say, and there are moments when we see delightful things about their personality, especially Tolkas, who is my favorite, um, nevertheless, um, generally, they are so far above us uh, that... You know they're 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 just much more sort of lofty and divine. In the book of Lost Tales, the narrative is much more told from the level of the Valar, almost like, excuse me, as peers. So, um, we see their foibles and we see them doing strange things. Even the like accessibility of Melko here, like you're brought before Melko and he's chatting and he's like, "Hey, you want to work in my kitchens? Okay, you can work in my kitchens." You know, like it's uh, um, it's no big deal. Um, now, I agree a bunch of you, um, uh, Nick and Carita and, uh, uh, Josh and Sarah King, um, are, um, all pointing out that the way we're supposed to be responding to Baron here is to admire him for being wily, right, for being cunning. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, and, uh, you know, Brianna 
says, if anything gives me fairy tale vibes, it's this whole episode of working in the kitchens of an enemy stronghold um, with a cat dog war going on in the background. Um, yeah, yeah I, I agree. It, it does seem very, I, I agree with you, Brandon, it does seem very fairy tale. And one of the things which says fairy tale to me is the particular way in which Baron as you know, our, you know, one of our protagonists here, though of course he's not the central protagonist, this is the tale of Tenuvio after all, but nevertheless, um, the way that Baron is depicted here, the, the particular kind of heroism he is given, he is not an epic hero, he is a fairy tale hero, and fairy tale heroes very frequently triumph by their wiliness and cleverness, especially clever speeches delivered under pressure. Um, uh, be clever and full of tricks, as Brian Yoder says. Exactly. It's like the fairy tale motto. Um, uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, and and your love will never be destroyed. Something like that, Brian. Um, yeah, yeah. But again, it's that's. Think about the number of fairy tale heroes that have survived by like thinking of something clever to say in the in the moment by deceiving uh, the you know the monster or the villain rather than. Uh, uh, rather than uh, by overpowering them, right? Um, <clears throat> even somebody like Jack the Giant Slayer, of course, isn't just more powerful than the giants. He's more cunning than the giants um, uh, and clevers his way out of situations. Um, Baron's situation as a thrall. Nonetheless, he set Baron to it. This is uh, 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 Tevildo, the cat, of course. Nonetheless, he set Baron to a test, and he bade him go catch three mice, for my hall is infested with them, said he. This indeed was not true. I mean, like, is anyone going to believe that? Like, the halls of the giant cats are infested with mice? <clears throat> Talk about the shoemaker's children. Anyway, this indeed was not true, as might be imagined. Yet a certain few there were, a very wild, evil, and magic kind, that dared to dwell there in dark holes. But they were larger than rats, and very fierce, and Tevildo harbored them for his own private sport, and suffered not their numbers to dwindle. Three days did Baron hunt them, but having nothing wherewith to devise a trap, and indeed he did not lie to Melko, saying that he had cunning in such contrivances, he hunted in vain, getting nothing better than a bitten finger for all his labor. Now, again, if we are thinking in the mindset, again, if we can't, if we fail to get the Silmarillion out of our heads, how, like, cloyingly anticlimactic does this sound? It's like, Baron, how far hast thou fallen, right? Um... But if we can succeed in getting out of that epic mode, because we have not we have not gotten a whiff of epic mode in this story so far. I mean, we are hundreds of miles from epic so far. Um, uh, and if we can successfully live there, this all works, right? Um, there doesn't seem to be much much stranger, even in the the kind of the sort of the comical at Baron's expense point about his, you know, not being able to catch the mice and traps and getting his finger bitten. Then was Tevildo scornful, and in great anger, but Baron got no harm of him or his thanes at that time, because of Melko's bidding, other than a few scratches. Evil, however, were his days thereafter in the dwellings of Tevildo. They made him a scullion, and his days passed miserably in the washing of floors and vessels, in the scrubbing of tables, and the hewing of wood, and the drawing of water. 
Often, too, would he be set to the turning of spits, whereon birds and fat mice were daintily roasted for the cats. Yet seldom did he get food or sleep himself, and he became haggard and unkempt, and wished often that never straying out of his alome, he had not even caught sight of the vision of, of the vision of Tenuvio. Uh, several of you, of course, already looking forward to the Princess Bride or thinking of our U.S.'s. Uh, yes, yes, Erica and Tom, I agree. Um, uh, <sighs> Nancy, I agree. The image of Baron turning his spit with a mouse on it, roasting, I mean, howsoever unusually large that mouse might be. I mean, the idea of him being like, ring, 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 and this mouse, you know, but, I mean, that's funny, right? I mean, that's funny. That's, that's, you know, so we're being told that he's miserable, um, but, like, although we're told he doesn't sleep or eat much and that he's haggard and unkempt, and yet that's being told literally in the same sentence that we're getting this really comical image of him daintily roasting fat mice on a spit for the cats. Um, that's funny. Um, but then, of course, we come to the the shocking element at the end there, right? Uh wished that he had never caught, even caught sight of the vision of Tenuvio. Now again, one is tempted to judge Baron harshly, but only if one compares him to the old Baron. And remember what has passed, right? And remember what this story has been. I mean, you know, he had this sort of light flirtation with this uh, uh, highly twinkly-footed elf girl uh, in the woods, quite suddenly met her dad, bravely declared that he, because he's braver than most, you know, um, that he really quite wanted to marry her, um, uh, and even agreed to go on this wild goose chase, uh, uh, you know, uh, into the, uh, into the, the stronghold of the, um, you know, of the central bad guy in order to, to, to get it. But, you know, now he's like, boy, this just really just hasn't been worth it. Again, we don't have that sense of high destiny. The idea that Baron would abandon Luthien, and I'm saying that name on purpose, um, in the later story, is unthinkable, right? Baron would have to betray his high destiny. He would have to abandon her. Again, this is where I come back to that important distinction that Christopher makes between them being lovers and not lovers that I was talking about before. He likes her a lot, right? Um, he was enchanted by her beauty. It's clear that she likes him back. He quite wants to marry her, but at this point, no, but there's nothing between them. They're not committed to each other, right? Um, as far as he knows, she's still off dancing and laughing with her brother, and maybe she's forgotten him by now, right? Um, there is no reason necessarily that he would have to think. I mean, is there anything that we've seen in Tenuviel's character um, as Baron has seen it in this story that would lead us to believe that he, that he can count on the fact that, you know, she will never forsake and abandon him? So, it um, uh, it makes it makes sense. Um, it makes sense. And maybe Nick Marazzo says, uh, I've worked as a scullion before, and it's a quite dreadful job. Absolutely agreed. And it's a very traditional, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very fairy tale kind of fate, right? Um, uh, you know, you're not going to be like working away in the salt mines, uh, until you die for want of food, for, for want of air and light. 
Um, no, you're, you're going to work as a scullery in the kitchen, uh, daintily roasting mice on spits. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what about uh, Tenuvio? Meanwhile, now that fair maiden wept for a very great while after Baron's departure. Even get the understatement of that expression. She wept for was, uh, quite a while. She wept actually, right? I mean, I, I get Sarah Lagarde coming back to what you were saying before about sort of the faint praise that they were being given, right? Now that fair maiden wept for a very great while after Baron's departure, and danced no more about the woods, and Dairon grew angry and could not understand her. But she had grown to love the face of Baron peeping through the branches, and the crackle of his feet as they followed her through the wood. See, she totally knew he was there. And his voice that called wistfully, Tenuvio, Tenuvio, across the stream before her father's doors, she longed to hear again. And she would not now dance when Baron was fled to the evil halls of Melko, and maybe had already perished. So bitter did this thought become at last, that that most tender maiden went to her mother, for to her father she dared not go, nor even suffer him to see her weep. Um, there is a, um, <laughs> yeah, Brian, I agree, the undertone there with the Dairon grew angry, it's like a brother-sister thing, right? As Brian Yoder says, um, you know, Dairon couldn't understand, you know, it's like, geez, get over it, sister. Um, yeah, absolutely, it's like a brother-sister thing there, right? Um, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she, so she goes to her mom for advice. Um, she, uh, um, but th- there does seem to be something of a loss of innocence here, I want to say. Her relationship getting a little bit more serious in her mind here, right? It's almost... At, at first, it seems almost self-centered, right? Even when she introduces Baron to her dad, remember, she was like, nobody appreciates my dancing more than he does. He's like the best audience in the world. I wish everybody were as enchanted by my dancing as this guy does. In fact, I'd kind of like to keep him around as, like, my personal private audience because, like, man, the audience feedback I get from that guy is way better than I get from anybody else, right? I'm exaggerating, but... But you see that element? That, I mean, it's like it's about her, right? You know what? Do you know what I like about him? He really likes my dancing. I mean, some people say it's okay, but I mean, he loves it, right? And that's so cool. And she goes from that to thinking like, gosh, he's fled to the evil halls of Melko. He might already be dead. Or worse, uh, as Sarah King says, he might be scrubbing pots and cooking mice. Just imagine. Um... Uh, but but anyway, it, it, she it is getting serious, and she, she is thinking not just of how much fun she was having, but she's thinking of him uh, more and more, and that does seem that does seem kind of important, and like a like a shift in the story. But again, think of what a gentle shift this is, where we're shifting from, and what we're shifting to. Um, we're in we're in such a different world uh, from the high love of Baron and Luthien. Then the word gets tossed out. Um, this isn't even the whole sentence. I like had to cut because it gets thrown in at the end of a long sentence about something else entirely about, you know, Huan worrying about them being found by Melko and everything. Tinuvio and Baron wandered far away with Huan, and they became great in friendship with him. And in that life, Baron grew strong again, and his thraldom fell from him, and Tinuvio loved him. 
It's the first time we're told this, right? Now they're lovers, right? Now they are they are in a relationship now, right? They're 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 officially going steady as of now. Um, you know, yes, Karita, exactly, a boy, a girl, and and a dog. Um, we now have a reciprocal romantic relationship between Baron and Tenuvio. Um But it takes till here for it to happen. So the sort of slow growth of their love for each other and the slow growth of them as characters um, is one, I think, one of, the, one of the major dynamics we can see certainly in the first half of this story. Well, I... Um, I'm uh, running out of time, as I always do. One brief thing I want to mention, and I want to make sure I get to the dog and cat stuff. We have to talk about Huan and Tivildo. Um, so I was going to talk about this one. I'll skip over this one a little bit more. We might come back to it later on. But just let me note in passing, this is the 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 spell that Tenuviel casts and weaves in order to make her hair grow long, um, from which she weaves her, her cloak of her drowsy cloak of shadow. Um, and um, I, I think this is very interesting in the context of um, in the context of magic in Tolkien's mind, how magic works in Tolkien's world. Um, this kind of thing we don't see in his later works. But it's interesting that back here at the beginning we're getting this kind of spell with the the water that must be brought uh, by moonlight in silence and the wine that must be brought in sunlight while singing and then, you know, the way that she weaves these, um, the names of the tallest and longest things on earth, um, the beards the beards of the Indravangs, that is the long beards, um, so, you know, the, 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 the long beard dwarves uh, are there from the very beginning, though they're not good guys here, by the way. Um, Anyhow, um, we get uh, we get lots of things that we don't, that aren't uh, really sort of explained uh, later on. Um, okay, um, Arthur points out that it's interesting in her spell she names quite a few evil things. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, this is very different from how we see magic operating in in uh, in later uh, par- parts of the story. There's more that we could say about that, but I want to get on to dogs and cats, so I'll skip over this a little bit. I just wanted to sort of draw your attention to that in passing. Um, I'd be interested to see what you guys thought about that later. Okay. Um, with the Tevildo and Huan stuff, we come across an element which is, I think, very prominent throughout the Book of Lost Tales. Indeed, this is something we're going to come back to later on. You remember earlier in class, I said that he is... In the Book of Lost Tales, consciously writing mythology in a couple of different senses. One of the senses in which he is clearly doing mythology, and this comes up, this came up several times in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, especially when we were talking about the making of the sun and moon, for instance. But uh, very often we see these elements of myth as explanatory story, right? You know, those of you who remember the Book of Lost Tales, Part 1 will recall, you know, the flower of the moon and how it gets dropped, right? And so that's why you've got the splotchy bits on the moon because of how the... You know, that kind of thing, right? Those, um... 
um, those kind of um, mythic story as explanation for observable natural phenomenon, right? Why does the um, why does the moon have splotches? Why do the moon and sun not go? You know, why do they go at different paces across the sky, and sometimes are in the sky together, and sometimes not? Um, uh, all of these different things, um, very much more like a couple of you are quoting like titles of uh, Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. It's exactly like that kind of thing. Uh, more, more mythic than those, but that's in, in the sense of explanatory in that way. Um, uh, you know, uh, how the elephant got his trunk and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, this is, we see that element very prominently here in the story of Huan and Tevildo, right? This is the story of how dogs and cats became enemies. Um, why is it that when a dog sees a cat, it always goes chasing after it? Why? Why Why does it do that? It, they don't eat cats, right? Um, so why do they chase them all the time? Well, there's an explanation for that. And here is that explanation. Now it is to be told to thee, Ariel. Um, I love even how the narrator breaks the frame there. It's almost like our attention is being drawn to the fact that we're getting like a sub-story, right? This, this portion of the story, you know, I want to draw your attention to the fact that we're transitioning into a, like a sub-story of this. Um, now it is to be told to thee, Ariel, that in those days Tevildo had but one trouble in the world, and that was the kindred of the dogs. Many indeed of these were neither friends nor foes of the cats, for they had become subject to Melko, and were as savage and cruel as any of his animals. Indeed, from the most cruel and most savage he bred the race of wolves, and they were very dear indeed to him. Was it not the great grey wolf Carcarus Knifefang, father of wolves, who guarded the gates of Angamandi in those days, and long had done so? Many there were, however, who would neither bow to Melko, nor live wholly in fear of him, but dwelt either in the dwellings of men, and guarded them from much evil that had otherwise befallen them, or roamed the woods of Hisalome, or passing the mountains, the mountainous places, fared even at times into the region of Artenor, and the lands beyond, and to the south. Okay. So we have this mythic history of dogs and cats, right? Now, dogs are divided. Some dogs are servants of Melko, but again, they've been taken, and they've been They've, been, they've become subject to him, and they are now savage and cruel. He has bred the race of the wolves. So there's this idea that he has corrupted dogs to make wolves, but the true dog, right, is no servant of Melko, but is faithful, and indeed, like, the true dogs are the ones who, uh, who um, dwell in the dwellings of men and guard them, or else wander around and, uh, and and pursue the servants of Melkor. Even that image of Karkaris Knifefang, father of wolves, guarding the gates of Angamandi, is again like a warped twisting of what the essence of dogness is, right? Um, <laughs> Sarah King says, uh, there are a few righteous dogs, but not even one righteous cat. Um, yes, no, you are all correct. Um, it does not seem that Tolkien is much of a cat person. I think it becomes very clear in this story uh, Tolkien's, <laughs> what seems to be Tolkien's personal opinion of cats. Um, 
Did ever any of these view Tevildo or any of his thanes or subjects, then there was a great baying and a mighty chase, and albeit seldom was any cat slain by reason of their skill in climbing and in hiding, and because of the protecting might of Melko, yet was great enmity between them, and some of those hounds were held in dread among the cats. None, however, did Tevildo fear, for he was as strong as any among them, and more agile and swift, save only, than Huan, captain of dogs. So swift was Huan that on a time he had tasted the fur of Tevildo, and though Tevildo had paid him for that with a gash from his great claws, yet was the pride of the Prince of Cats unappeased, and he lusted to do a great harm to Huan of the dogs. Um, uh, yeah. Again, see the, that, that you know, mythic explanatory element, right? Um, did ever any of these, that is, the dogs that roam about, view Tevildo or any of his thanes or subjects, then there, w- then there was a great baying and a mighty chase, and albeit seldom was any cat slain by reason of their skill in climbing and in hiding, and because of the protecting might of Melko. Again, it's, it's, think of how often in these passages you can picture dogs and cats, right? How closely Tolkien is adhering to a, dis- a, a, a very recognizable description of dog and cat behavior. That's exactly what happens. You know, uh, there is a great baying and a mighty chase, and seldom is any cat slain by reason of their skill of climbing, right? And then we throw in, uh, and the protecting might of Melko also might have something to do with why dogs so rarely catch cats. Um, uh, carrying on. The design of Tevildo and his two companions was to enter that dale that is where Huan is supposedly lying sick, silently from different quarters, and so come all suddenly upon Huan unawares and slay him, or, if he were too stricken to make fight, to make sport of him and torment him. Very cat-like, right? Cats, you know, cats will, you know, have this famous reputation for tormenting their weaker prey, um... Uh, in not merely killing it, um, so we see their their cunning, um, their cowardice, and their cruelty. Right, those nasty servants of Melko. This they did now. But even as they leapt out upon him, Huan sprang up into the air with a mighty baying, and his jaws closed in the back, close to the neck of that cat Oikoroi, and Oikoroi died. But the other thane fled howling up a great tree, and so was Tevildo left alone face to face with Huan, and such an encounter was not much to his mind. Again, cats don't like a stand-up fight face to face, right? Yet was Huan upon him too swiftly for flight, and they fought fiercely in that glade, and the noise that Tevildo made was very hideous. But at length Huan had him by the throat, and that cat might well have perished had not his claws as he struck out blindly pierced Huan's eye. Then did Huan give tongue, and Tevildo, screeching fearsomely, got himself loose with a great wrench, and leapt up a tall and smooth tree that stood by, even as his companion had done. Despite his grievous hurt, Huan now leaps beneath that tree, baying mightily, and Tevildo curses him and casts evil words upon him from above. Um, 
Oh, I, I, when Huan gave tongue, uh, that means he he sets up his baying. Uh, he is a hound, so uh, gave tongue is a is a um, is a, an archaic expression, generally used to describe not just barking in general, but the but in particular the baying of hounds on a scent um, is uh, is is what is generally described as a dog giving tongue. Um, and and again, can't you just picture that uh, uh, that you know the cat up the tree, uh, cursing and casting evil words upon him from above? You think of the 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 you know the the sort of the the spitting and uh, uh, and and nasty sounds that a cat would be making down upon uh, the dog below that had just treated. Um, and and some of their sounds are in fact, uh, as Karita admits, quite hideous. Um, last one Gimli came leaning upon a stick and Baron ate of course you can't help but love Gimli right Uh, Gimli the uh, the aged elf uh, who has the sharpest ears that anyone has ever had right um He's a little, little, little different, right? Just no relation. Uh, but uh, interesting that Tolkien decided to recycle that particular name. <laughs> anyway, good old Gimli the Elf. Um, yeah, if you really want to confuse somebody, just drop a reference to this Gimli in conversation. Um, Gimli came leaning upon a stick, and Baron aided him. But Baron was clad in rags and haggard, and he had in his hand a great knife he had caught up in the kitchen, fearing some new ill when the house shook and all the voices of the cats were heard. But when he beheld Tenuviel standing amid the host of cats that shrank from her and saw the great collar of Tevildo, then was he amazed utterly and knew not what to think. But Tenuviel was very glad and spoke, saying, O Baron, from beyond the bitter hills, wilt thou now dance with me? But let it not be here. And she led Baron far away, and all those cats set up a howling and wailing, so that Huon and Tevildo heard it, heard it in the woods. But none followed or molested them, for they were afraid, and the magic of Melka was fallen from them. This indeed they rued afterward, when Tevildo returned home, followed by his trembling comrade, for Tevildo's wrath was terrible, and he lashed his tail and dealt blows at, uh, dealt blows at all who stood nigh. Now who one of the dogs, though it might seem a folly, when Baron and Tenuvio came to that glade, had suffered that evil prince to return for, without further war, but the great collar of gold he had set about his own neck, and at this was Tevildo more angry than, a, than, than all else, for a great magic of strength and power lay therein. Little to Huon's liking was it that Tevildo lived still, but now no longer did he fear the cats, and that tribe has fled before the dogs ever since. And the dogs hold them still in scorn, since the humbling of Tevildo in the woods nigh Angamandi, and Huon has not done any greater deed. Indeed, afterward Melko heard all, and he cursed Tevildo and his folk and banished them. Nor have they since that day had lord or master or any friend, and their voices wail and screech, for their hearts are very lonely and bitter and full of loss. Yet there is only darkness therein, and no kindliness. Definitely not a cat person. Um, Yeah. Um... Exactly. This is why... And again, notice again the cat behavior, right? This is why cats don't behave like dogs, right? This is why, you know, your cat will never obey you. 
This is why you you know you can't teach your cat to do tricks uh, because they will never have a lord or master or any friend. Um, this is why cats wail and screech, make such a horrible sounds in the night because they're crying out their loneliness and bitterness and their loss, right? Because there's only darkness and no kindliness in their hearts. <laughs> it's tough, I know, for cat people. I um, I have to admit to kind of being unmoved myself. I'm not a cat person. I used to uh, have cats when I was in high school, but ever since I married someone who is deathly allergic to cats, I've gotten over that. Um, you know, for the last 17 years of my life, I have viewed cats as vermin who might kill my family by their mere presence. Uh, so I have uh, developed quite an antipathy to cats. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I find it just funny. I know cat lovers have a hard time with this with these passages. Um, what I would try to, if we can attempt to get past uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the uncharitable depiction of cats... Um, uh, and 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 you're right. Uh, you know, Arthur is wanting to uh, uh, to to mention how wonderfully comical, how wonderfully comically onomatopoetic the names of the cat thanes of Tavildo are. Right? How, how we get you know Marley, uh, for instance. I mean, they're they're, they're elvish words. Um, but put together in such a way as to imica- imitate cat sounds in a truly delightful way. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, but, um, but anyway, so try to get over the fact that Tolkien, obviously not a cat person, uh, and the glorification of dogs. Again, the important element here is this sense of, and this is why, you know, it, notice how it is made explicit here, Right. Um, uh, you know, the, the tribe of cats has fled before the dogs ever since, and the dogs hold them still in scorn since the humbling of Tevildo in the woods nigh Angamandi. And you think about the, the different impulses that this adds, to, or not impulses, the different um, effects that this gives to the story, right? On the one hand, I had said we were way, you know, we were miles away from the epic, right? You know, there's very little that was epic in the love story so far. Um, and she's still being flirty, right? Um, you know, she's still, you know, her comment, like, will you now dance with me? But maybe not here, right? I, I mean, it's, it's, she's still adopting the same tone. She's no longer naive as she once was. She's no longer even innocent <clears throat> in the way that she was before. But she's not wholly lost her innocence either. There's still that that sense of innocence there uh, in her in her words to him, which are really delightful. But we now have touched, in a sense, on the epic. Well, upon the mythic, anyway. This bigger thing, the fact that the animosity between dogs and cats is being rooted in this great struggle between powerful heroes of old. Right, Tevildo, the wicked spirit in cat form. I know Tevildo's not a real cat, and um, uh, and Juan, the great hound. Um, this gives a larger stature to this part of the story, which doesn't really fit with the stature of the rest of the story. 
right? You know, that is, today, the dogs and cats that we have still show a faint and distant echo of that, you know, great conflict between Huan and Tevildo in ancient days of, like, the great and mythic times. Through the inclusion of the Tevildo and Huan story, we have what I would say really for the first time. You could say the addition of the Silmaril to the story and Baron being sent after the Silmaril begins to go in that direction, but I would still say that the, the, the quarrel between Tevildo and Huan is the first time that that kind of um, sort of epic, mythic story um, is really being brought to bear in what had otherwise been a relatively light-hearted, relatively small-scale um, you know, again, not the greatest the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar, just the, you know one of the fairest maidens few have been as beautiful as she right? Um, again, the, the, the scale of it has been small but the scale is not small with Tevildo and Huan. Right there, we go back to the root of all dog-cat animosity for all for all history. It's a big deal. It's, in a sense, although it's a funny side story in a sense, it is, um, it is the biggest, um, the sort of, the, the biggest thing that's happened in this story. The, 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 the Huan and Tevildo have more stature than any of the other main characters or main events uh, of this story. So already this is the first place that we see their story, that simple, you know, innocent, childlike, flirtatious love story being brought into contact with something high. Comical, but high, right? Um, And that, I think, is interesting. Keep an eye on that impulse pay attention to other places in the lost tales as we complete as we go through the book where you see that kind of impulse by Tolkien that uh, that writing of explanatory myth um, it's going to become very important when we look at the last chapter when we look at sort of the final direction of the book of lost tales and the changes that he makes to the final direction of the book of lost tales um, yeah yeah um, good. All right. Um, I'm going to let you go now. Next time, of course, we're going to we're going to finish the Tenuvial story. Um, I want to focus on the incident, of course, in Melko's uh, uh, in Melko's throne room, and uh, especially his conversation with Tenuvio and the theft of the Silmaril. Um, we'll look at Carcharus, of course, um, and the biting off of Baron's hand, um, and then very importantly, the end of the story. And of course, when we look at the end of the story and uh, the death or non-death or, I almost said undeath, but that really creates the wrong picture. We don't get zombie to to Nubio. Uh, But anyway, um, the ultimate fate, shall we say, of Baron and Tenuvio in this this story, that again, we're going to come back around to the the Baron's race question, certainly. Um, Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, I look forward to talking about the rest of the story next week. Good night, everybody. Bye.